Well, amen, church family. It's good to see you. Hear from some of you. You're struggling with the same uh, allergy attack that uh, everyone in my family seems to be struggling with. So, uh, good times. Hey, here's here's a question this morning: uh, Is God able? Does God humble the powerful? Now, I know if if we know the right church answer, it's an affirmative yes, Pastor. But, but let's look around the world today. Let's even take a look just through history. And we, we see powerful leaders of all different kinds. There are political leaders. There are economic leaders. There are leaders like your boss or a teacher or a coach. There are all kinds of leaders who live in an open hostility against the one true God. And it brings you to the question of, do those leaders just get a pass? Or does, is God in the business of humbling the proud and the powerful? It's quite an important question, especially as we seek to understand how we follow Jesus when living in exile in a world that is hostile to our King and to the truth we hold dear. And so I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me back to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Book of Daniel, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have one, feel free to use the Bible in the pew back in front of you. The page numbers on the screen will correspond to that Bible. Now, as we come to Daniel 4, church family, it is, it is a unique p- passage for a couple of reasons. It is not the chapter of Daniel with the most verses, but it is the longest chapter of Daniel. So because of that, if you see me make a couple jumps or skips, it's not because there's anything non-important in it. It is because it may take the entire sermon time to read every word, word for word. It's quite long. But two, it's also unique. It is the only chapter in all of the Word of God where it is narrated primarily by a pagan ruler. So look with me here. Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and mighty are His wonders and His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Here's how it starts. There is a There is an initial acknowledgement as Nebuchadnezzar makes a proclamation that would have been posted in all the towns of the empire, and the proclamation is to all the peoples that live, may your peace abound. Here's the aim. We want you to know peace. It said, it seemed good to me that I let you know these, these signs and wonders, these unique and supernatural ways that the God of the Most High God, the one true God, has worked in my life. And right off the bat, he says his signs are great, his, his wonders are, are mighty, he's, his kingdom has got no beginning or end, it's everlasting, and his rule is over all people at all time from generation to generation. And having given this greeting, here he now tells the story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Now, ease in my house means I was at, I was calm. I was comfortable, flourishing. I was happy. He is, unlike some of the the prior chapters where there's conquest in in Jerusalem and Judea, where there's uh, maybe uh, uprisings and coups, and you see uh, the fiery furnace here, he says, I have come to a place 
where battles have ceased, where prosperity is secured, where loyalty is present. Life is good. I'm comfortable in my palace. Things are calm. In fact, uh, many believe that, that because of how Nebuchadnezzar describes this period of his reign, we're likely, we've made a, a massive jump forward. And this is about 34 years after the beginning of Daniel chapter 1, when Nebuchadnezzar first steps into Jerusalem and takes Daniel and his friends captive. So in the midst of this comfort, he says, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Here's what he says, in the midst of this period of life where things were comfortable, where I am happy, where, where all seemed well from my vantage point, I began to have some dreams. And the language, the language which in English is uh, fearful and alarming me, and in the Hebrew, it's, it's language that describes absolute terror and panic. Whatever Nebuchadnezzar has seen in these dreams and visions, it has absolutely shattered the peace, calm, and happiness he mentions in verse 4. So it says, I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in. I told the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. He calls all the, all the scholars in. They, they don't know what to do. But, but finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the vision, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. Calls in Daniel, says, Daniel, I understand. I've I, I known you long enough. I've seen your track record. You, you have a spirit of the, of, the, of the most high gods. You have a discernment into all mysteries that no one else possesses. Tell me what this dream means. And he proceeds to Nebuchadnezzar, describe the dream. Listen to what he says, verse 10. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong. Its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. All living creatures fed themselves from it. And it said, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. With a band of iron, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. And in the new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. 
This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, this is the dream. Now you tell me what it is, you who know all mysteries. So here's, here's just a recap. Here, here's the dream. He, he sees this great and mighty tree that's grown up strong and all the beasts find find provision and protection under it, and it can be seen throughout the world. And then as he's beholding this tree, all of a sudden, a watcher, or you and I would maybe know from other terms of Scripture, an angel steps down out of heaven and orders the tree needs to be chopped down, destroy it, leave the stump. We're not going to completely obliterate it, but everything's got to go but the stump. But even that stump, that remnant is going to be bound. And then if you caught it, it changes. All of a sudden, he no longer talks about the it of the tree, and he starts talking about let him be drenched, let him share in the grass, let his mind be changed. All of a sudden, there is a shift. Make note of that, because all that, all, already Nebuchadnezzar has this gnawing suspicion that whatever the tree represents is not just an it, it's, it's a person, and this person may in fact be him. He says, we're going to chop the tree down, we're going to let his mind be changed, we're going to take one who is lofty and high and make him low, we're going to take one who is the pinnacle of all God's creation, an image bearer of the Most High, who, whose rule and authority is uh, unlike any other's. In, in the known world, and we're going to make this one a beast so that all the living may know that there is only one being who possesses control over the realm of mankind, and it is not a human ruler but the Most High. So he, he says, Daniel, t- you know, tell me, verse 19, Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So you can imagine Daniel begins to hear this, and Nebuchadnezzar watches as, as undoubtedly, uh, look at verse, uh, look at verse, the rest of verse 19, the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. So even there, there is a panic that is taking place inside Daniel as he is hearing the dream, so much so that he hesitates to respond, and the king notices something's really bugging Daniel. And he says, look, Daniel, give it to me straight. Tell me like it is. What's going on? So Daniel replies and says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation, your adversaries. He says, the tree you saw, which became large, grew strong, height reached the heavens. Drop down to verse 22. The tree, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong. Your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the ends of the earth. In that the king saw a watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it. And he, 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 he quotes the rest of what the angel says, then drop down with me in 224. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king." that you will be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. In seven periods of time, 
will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and He bestows it on whomever He wishes. And in this it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. So here's what Daniel says. He says, King, I've got bad news. I wish what I was about to tell you dealt with those who hate you. I wish it was about your adversaries. Instead, you need to understand this great and mighty tree that gets chopped down, King Nebuchadnezzar, it's you. You're the tree. And your pride and your arrogance and your loftiness and your, um, your being enthralled with the greatness of your own glory and power, you have failed to realize who actually has the authority and has the right to grant it or take it away. And so here's what's going to happen. You're going to be driven out from society. You're going to be driven out from mankind. You're going to be driven out and and you're going to live with the beast. You're going to live like the beast, not just with the beast, but like the beast. You're going to be made low. Now, God in His grace is not going to take it all from you, but after seven periods of time, and you say, well, what are seven periods of time, Pastor? There's, there's debate. It's no more than seven years. Some would say it's certainly seven years. Some would say maybe it's seven seasons or seven months, or, and you can make a strong case either way. We just know it's not longer than seven years. That there's going to be this period of time where you, where Nebuchadnezzar, you, you go into what we would call in, in uh, more modern times lycanthropy or boanthropy, the, the actual documented, uh, uh, documented I, I don't know what right word to get it, disease that we've, we've seen throughout history where individuals will be of sound mind in one moment and they will turn and believe that they are some kind of animal. It's not some crazy made up, wow, that, who would ever do that? We, there's documented cases of it. There's documented, lots of documented cases of it in the last 200 years. So you're going to go out until you realize who the Most High is. And the reason the stump's not going to go away is because God in His grace is not going to just rip the whole kingdom from you, which is quite remarkable. Could you imagine if the king went away for several years and thought he was a cow? Would that not be a great time for other people to come and usurp the king? Yet God's going to preserve the kingdom. Yet listen to Daniel's heart. So this is what's going to happen, Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Please pay attention to me, king. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. He says, King, here's the deal. This is God's judgment. This is God's discipline upon your arrogance, upon your pride, upon your sin in which you have, you have treated people in unrighteousness. You have defrauded people of justice. You have shown no mercy. He said, look, stop. Hear the cry now. Repent. Turn that your prosperity may be prolonged. Maybe God will relent. Now look what happens. Verse 28, this, this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, a whole year goes by. Nothing's happened. It says he's standing, walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is, it, is not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? 
Undoubtedly, thoughts of the vision have left him. It's been 12 months. It seems like maybe Daniel finally struck out. Maybe Daniel finally said something that's not going to come to pass, and he's there early in the morning looking out on the beauty, and Babylon was a beautiful city, an architectural marvel. He thinks, look at what I have built. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. And it proceeds to describe what's already been said. Look at 33. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away. He began eating like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until the hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So a year goes by, pride enters his mind, and God strikes him. He's driven out. He's out there in the wilderness long enough that his hair doesn't just grow long, but it mats together like feathers. His nails don't just grow long, but they become like claws, coarse. And seven periods go by. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. What a picture of humility. Take your eyes off yourself and raise them to Christ. And my reason returned to me. His repentance and humility preceded his restoration. Reason returned to me. And what did it drive him to do? I blessed the Most High. I praised him and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and nobles began seeking me out, and I was reestablished in my sovereignty. And surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For his works are true, his ways are just, And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So here's what goes on. Nebuchadnezzar in his pride, he's out there that morning looking out on the splendor. God strikes him. He goes and spins however long it is out in the wilderness. And at at a certain point, in the midst of the insanity of acting and living like a beast, he finally clicks. I'm not God. God is God. And he lifts his eyes to heaven, reasons return to him, and he begins to praise God. And you heard, you heard the, the heart of his prayer, which is ultimately the point of the passage, which is this. There is only one God who is the most high sovereign Lord of the eternal kingdom. There's only one. Describes the most high God, the God of Daniel, the God of the Bible. He is the one whose dominion is everlasting, whose kingdom has no beginning or no end, whose sovereignty and And reign is binding upon every person, whoever has lived, will live, or is living. From generation to generation, no one escapes his rule. And when God in his sovereignty decides to do something, when he seeks to carry out his will, he can do it amongst the host of heaven in the supernatural realm where the angels and demons dwell. And he can do it in the realm of mankind, and there is no one who can stand up to him and go, actually, God, uh, we're going to stop you. Actually, God, your will is stupid. We're going to rebuke you. 
We're going to alter your plans. No, instead, we find throughout the passage that he is the one true God, the king of heaven, the absolute sovereign. His sovereignty is present. Listen, church family, here's what this tells us about God. God's sovereignty isn't something that's coming. It's something that is. He will not, will not be sovereign. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. He's concretely sovereign. We're not talking about something that's abstract. Listen, God is sovereign. He rules this realm. Now, we know God and His sovereignty has created mankind with a type of moral free will where in His sovereignty, He's unafraid to allow us to make decisions, right or wrong, where He does not always spare us the real consequences of those decisions and both the pleasure or the pain that they can bring individually or corporately. But because He's sovereign, there's no possible way that what our decisions, right or wrong, good or bad, pleasurable or pain, are going to alter or stop where He is leading all of history for His purpose. There's this beautiful interweaving. And because of this, He's freely sovereign. God does what He wants and no one can stop Him. No one can teach Him. No one can rebuke Him. He doesn't look for our approval. He does not wait for our consent. And He is sovereign over all people at all times. And what does this sovereignty mean? It means, you see it in, in the passage, He gives and takes away authority to rulers of mankind because He alone possesses all the authority. Did you catch what the, the angel said back there in, back there in, in Daniel ch in, in, in verse uh, 17 when he said, the most high is the ruler over the realm of mankind. He bestows it, meaning authority, on whom he wishes. And he sets it over the lowliest of men, which is already right off the bat a little bit of a humble shot at Nebuchadnezzar. You're not special, Nebuchadnezzar. You're just the one that God has allowed to have the authority. God has, because He possesses all the authority, the right, and the power, and the ability to bestow or allow authority for any ruler. And again, by ruler, that could mean a president, it could mean a king, it could mean a boss, it could mean a teacher, a coach. There's a lot of different levels of authority that we face in this life. There's some authority that God raises a person up and puts them there. There's some authority we, in, in the kind of will God gives us, that we prop up and put there. But even when we prop up and put someone in authority, whether they should or shouldn't, if they have authority, it is only because God, by His sovereign hand, has allowed it. And just as He can allow it, He can snatch it away. Because he alone has all the authority. He alone, in light of this, because he is the most high God whose kingdom is everlasting, because he is the sovereign Lord over the seen and the unseen, he alone is worthy of, of the glory and honor. Do you see what Nebuchadnezzar's response is? He said, I, I humbled myself. Reason restoration came to me, and, and I praised him. I, I honored him. I praise, I exalt. Church family, when we really understand that God is the one true sovereign, that He is the sovereign Lord of the eternal kingdom, we understand He alone is worthy of our worship and honor. He alone is worthy of our life. He alone is worthy of our humility. Alone. And as we remember from last week, whether or not 
we burn in the fiery furnace or we get pulled from the fiery furnace, He is worthy. Let's make no mistake, church family, there is only one man whom God has given all authority, honor, and glory. There is only one who defeated sin in the grave. There is only one to whom all enemies will be made a footstool. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. His name is Jesus. He is our Savior, our Deliverer, and He is our Sovereign Lord, and He alone is worthy of our worship. So we see that God is the sovereign Lord of the eternal kingdom, but we also see that the God who is the sovereign Lord and whose kingdom is eternal is the same God who demonstrates power, patience, and grace to mankind. Now, this is critical. Power, He can give authority, He can take away authority. Patience. Thus far in the book of Daniel, God is obviously one of your main characters. But thus far, Daniel's chapter 1, 2, and 3, your, your main characters from a human standpoint have been Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah. These are, these are your main characters. But there's been another main character that there's that God's been working on in the background since the beginning of the book. It's Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king who plunders the temple of the Most High God and thinks he's ruler. He finds that these Hebrew boys who stand up for what they believe to be of a greater quality than his own. In chapter 2, he has a dream. No one, no one can tell back to him and, and interpret except for one, and he recognizes that the God of the Hebrews... He may, he may be far off and not present to defend his temple, but he absolutely can send his prophets with insight no one else has. In chapter 3, he discovers that God is far from being far off. He dances in the flames with his children. And all of a sudden now, Nebuchadnezzar comes to the forefront in chapter 4, and he discovers that the God of Daniel can touch Nebuchadnezzar's life any way he wants to because he is the one true God. We see this process of God moving through the ordinary faithfulness of four young boys, through the, the, the employment of his gifts through Daniel for the good of the king, through, through the boldness and courage and witness of those who would dare suffer for, for his glory. We, we watch as God moves through all of this, working on King Nebuchadnezzar's hearts. And I say, Pastor, Wait a minute, I'm taking notes and you were talking about patience. What does this have to do? Because this whole story has been taking place for 34 years. For 34 years, a pagan, hostile king has ruled over God's people and no judgment has fallen. For 34 years, God in His grace has sent dreams, people, the witness of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For 34 years. And then, even after the initial dream, God gives Nebuchadnezzar another year to respond in repentance. 
You see, God is very patient with mankind in our sin. Hundred and God said, I'm sending a flood. Repent. And gave the world 120 years to do so, though no one did. Moses ran off in sin into the wilderness, and God used 40 years. Israel would come back and be in sin, and God would take another 40 years to root out their sin. 34 years in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, at least 23 years of, of, of Jeremiah the prophet preaching to the people of Judah to respond in repentance for their wicked ways. You turn over to the New Testament, and 2 Peter says clear, God is not slow. There are those who are mocking God saying, you said your God is coming back. It's been 2,000 years. What's he doing? Did he lose track of time? And Peter responds to that and says, our God is not slow as some count slowness. But his heart is that none should perish. So he gives people time to come to faith and have everlasting life. Our God is very patient. By the way, 34 years for King Nebuchadnezzar, let me put that in context for you. 34 years ago, my mother was pregnant with me. <laughs> the entirety of my lived life is how much patience God showed a pagan king working on his heart. God is patient. God is gracious. He's gracious to reveal himself and call us to repentance. And he does use dreams today for some. For many of us as believers, the primary way is through the Holy Spirit, through the read and preached word, through fellow brothers and sisters, through church leaders. He's, he's gracious to grant us time to repent. He's even gracious to preserve our life Though we walk in our own path and our own pride and our own sin, He's gracious in all of this because His heart and His will, God's sovereign will flows from His compassionate heart in which He works for the repentance and salvation of the nations, and that includes even hostile pagan kings. So we understand that God is the sovereign Lord whose kingdom is eternal. We understand that when power and patience and grace he responds to mankind, and there's two things this passage calls us to do in light of that truth. One, church family, understand, we cannot and must not live in fear on this hand, or on this hand despise our leaders, but in the patient graciousness of God's love, we must love them and pray for them and seek their good. We're told, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're commanded to pray for our leaders. Jeremiah 29, they're told, you pray for the leaders of Babylon. You set yourself for the good of the city because as Babylon knows security, you will know security. This passage shows us, well, what are we to pray, Pastor? Well, we're to pray for godly counsel around our leaders. Sometimes it may feel hopeless. How could a Christian get in some of these positions? Listen, how on earth could Daniel a Hebrew boy, get to be the second most powerful person in the Babylonian empire because God can raise up who he wants and put him where he wants. But he does expect us to be praying for him to do such. We're to pray for God to raise up godly wisdom, counsel around our leaders who can help interpret God's will for them. We need to pray for God to shake the pride of our leaders. We need to pray for our leaders to humble themselves 
We need to pray with a heart that really desires both God's justice but also God's goodness. Listen, it says Daniel was was appalled for a while. He was alarmed. And here's the real reality. Daniel was alarmed because Daniel, over 34 years of serving this king, of, of, of fearing God but honoring the king, as 1 Peter would put it, has prayed for this man, and there is a genuine affection in Daniel's heart for this man. Doesn't mean Daniel approves of everything he does. Doesn't mean, but there is a genuine love in his heart for this man. There is a genuine compassion, a genuine desire that Nebuchadnezzar know the well-being of God, that he respond to God, church, family. I don't care who the leader is, You can pick the politician. You can pick which boss you want. You can pick a teacher. I don't care what leader you want to name, but if we are truly following Christ, we must possess a heart of honest care for our leaders that drives how we pray. Even the ones who are hostile and mock our faith. And if we live this out, it alone will make us stand out from both sides of the polarized aisles that we get in our culture. We pray with a heart that desires God's justice and God's goodness. We pray never losing faithfulness. Realize, just as God has shown patience in Nebuchadnezzar's life for 34 years, so we know Daniel, the man who prayed three times a day, has spent three times a day for 34 years praying for Nebuchadnezzar. Now process that. I want you to imagine before I ever came into existence in 1988, praying for wicked leaders and not seeing the fruit of that prayer until today. If we're honest, most of us would have given up a couple decades ago because we don't see anything happening because we judge whether or not prayer is effective on whether or not God is a McDonald's server who will serve it up two minutes after we order it. Church family, we have to pray, and we have to pray not losing heart. Understand, church family, we are not here to stay. This is not our home. We are ambassadors for our home. Our citizenship is with the Lord, and every leader, every politician, every boss, every news anchor, every teacher, every coach is an image bearer fearfully and wonderfully made by God whom Jesus died on the cross for and whom the Holy Spirit is seeking to convict and to whom we have an obligation to pray for and to demonstrate the character of Jesus Christ too even if it means suffering. And that's a hard word to receive. We have to be prepared to help our leaders see the will of God. And how we speak and how we act, the tone we take, the respect we show, will go a long way in demonstrating whether or not they would heed our counsel. You see that with Daniel. Daniel and his friends are put in life-threatening situations every one of the chapters prior to this. They don't lash out. They don't try to raise up a coup. They don't use profane language to talk about how much they dislike Nebuchadnezzar. They show proper respect while never bowing down to anyone other than God. And so we are called to live this in the same tension as citizens of heaven exiled in this world. Now you go, Pastor, that's... That's a hard word, but it's a good word for all of us today. 
And if we stopped there, we would be putting ourselves in the position of Daniel. Let's respond. Let's respond to God's sovereignty and his movement in the life of our leaders with the faithfulness of Daniel. But we would miss a massive truth, church family, because the primary focus in this passage is not the faithfulness of Daniel. It's something we need to see and pull out because of the, the moment in time we find ourselves in, because of the temptation to get nasty and dogged about our leaders and angry. But here's the real truth, church family. Just like we need to respond to our leaders in a certain way because God is sovereign, so too every one of us needs to recognize and repent of any of our own pride in the same way. As, as one writer put it, we, we, must, we are all a bunch of Nebuchadnezzar clones wanting to call our own shots, to direct our own show as puny as it is, and seldom, except in a rare moment of sanity, stopping to consider how asinine our passion for self-defecation is. To understand, church family, pride is always sin. Pride was ultimately what took Satan down. Pride is the polar opposite of Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death. Pride is always a sin. In Nebuchadnezzar's pride, he took advantage of people, he defrauded justice, he refused mercy, and don't believe for a second, church family, that we are able, that we, that we won't do the same. Pride can manifest in a variety of ways. It can be arrogant and boastful. Look at me and what I've accomplished. Or it can be meanly and self-critical. Woe is me. I'm so bad. I can't do anything. What's wrong with me? Listen, pride is simply when the eyes of our hearts are, are locked on me, myself, and I. Which is why Nebuchadnezzar's response that he lifted his eyes to heaven. What a beautiful picture of humility in contrast to pride. The heart of pride looks out and says, look at me. The heart of humility looks up and says, look at Jesus. Pride is less a matter of words and more a matter of heart. I have no doubt many of us would say, you do something great, oh, I just want to thank God, I just want to thank Jesus. That's great that those words came out of your mouth, but it, does your heart really believe what you've accomplished is because of the grace of God, or does your heart really believe it's because you worked hard and you deserve it? Does your heart really believe that, that, that God's will is what matters, or is your heart locked in on I pray, but I pray for God to bless my plans. I don't ever lay my plans where I'm going to go to school, what I'm going to study, what job I'm going to do, who I'm going to marry, how, what, how we're going to raise our kids, how, how we're going to uh, steward our finances, when we're going to retire, all of the number of questions. We don't ever lay those before God and allow God to speak in and address those. You see, pride, pride's when we believe it's all about us. Pride is when we believe that what we've done is all because of us. Pride is when we believe our plans are what matter even if we know how to use the right words. Pride is a matter of the heart. Pride causes us to seek control. A proud life will be riddled with worry and anxiety as we seek for control and understand, church family, we need to repent of our pride. And there is a danger in our pride. Do you realize Nebuchadnezzar heard the truth, knew Daniel was right, and did nothing about it? And church family, the danger of our pride is we will hear the Lord convict us, we'll know the Lord is right, and we'll do nothing about it. 
there is a danger. We began to drift over into pride, over into sin, however it may manifest in our lives. And, and we automatically assume because all of a sudden God doesn't drop the hammer right at that moment, well, it must not be wrong. And that's why I told you, do you notice the passage? God is patient. God's first desire in our life as children isn't to lay the hammer down. It's that we'd out of humility and in love respond back to Him in repentance because that's what's best for us. But we're so, so self-focused on our own pleasure, our own will, our own drive, our own desires, me, myself, and I, me, 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 that we can hear the truth of God's call and go, well, nothing bad's happened. I must be okay. God must be okay with this. Oh, yeah, yeah, actually, it's not just that I haven't done anything, but, but God's okay with this. And we begin to lie and twist, understand we cannot ignore His patience with us in our pride. God is absolutely patient with us, but we don't know when the moment comes that His patience ends. He is patient with sinners, but He does not delay when it's time to act. Church family, in the life of a believer, when we begin to step into sin, we, we know from scriptures in that moment the Holy Spirit begins to convict us from within. John 14 and 16. We know that the Word of God pierces our heart with conviction, both from within by the Holy Spirit, from without by, by pastors, by teachers, by, by fellow believers. Hebrews chapter 4. We know that if we continue to ignore his conviction, the Holy Spirit will produce his grief in our heart. There will be, 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 be a grief in our heart. We know that God, the, the, the Father, will bring discipline into our lives, Hebrews 12, to correct us. But undoubtedly, there are some of us who have walked blatantly in sin for many years, and we think it's okay, and God's, God's good with it because He hasn't brought the hammer. Oh, what a dangerous position to be in. You see, we, we don't like the patience of God when He's patient with our world leaders and hadn't brought the hammer in their life. <laughs> but oh, we're, we'll, we'll take all full advantage of the patience of God when it's my own pride on the line. Church family, we have got to repent of our pride. Listen, there, there is restoration only in repentance. There is peace only in humility. Do you remember how Daniel 4 started? The king said, may peace abound. Did you notice his, his right reasoning wasn't returned to him until he humbled himself and looked up? There are issues in our hearts, church family. There are there is a lack of peace. There is a sense of being out of alignment that will only come when we repent, when we humble ourselves and go, God, you know what? I have been walking in pride. I am sorry. You are right. I'm taking the eyes off of me. I'm putting them on you. Then and only then will we find restoration and peace. Now understand God is the sovereign Lord of all history. 
the sovereign Lord whose kingdom reigns. He is patient and gracious with mankind. And we respond to that in a certain way by praying for and caring for our leaders. We also respond in a way by recognizing our own pride and repenting of it. And can we just be clear? There are undoubtedly some either in this room or watching online, you're not in Christ. You have never placed your faith personally in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your being. Yes, you sense the Holy Spirit convict you. You have had moments, you've had encounters where God has spoken, where the tugging has been there, and you've just said, you know what? I'm not gonna do it. Can I plead with you today? Scripture never speaks of the day of salvation as tomorrow. It says today is the day of salvation. None of us know how long God will be patient in pursuing salvation and bringing conviction and calling us to salvation. None of us knows. And I'm not trying to fear or scare anybody in the room, but simply to say, if you know and are convicted, you don't know Jesus, and you want to respond to Jesus, please don't wait for tomorrow. Please respond today. When King Louis XIV died, saw this this week, when he died, he had requested that the service be held in Notre Dame, and that at the service, all of the, the, the building would be dark except for a single candle on the casket at the front to symbolize the greatness and glory of his reign. And so it was set up this way, and then the court preacher got up to give the funeral oration, except when he got up, he walked over to the casket, he snuffed out the light, and he began the message with, only God is great, only God is great. Church family, only God is great. Only God is Lord of history. Only God is patient and gracious with mankind. So may we respond accordingly today. Let's pray. Father, we look to you with hope. You are in control. Father, may we look to you in humility, for you alone are God. You know every heart in this room. You know the number of hairs on every head in this room. Of every head watching online. You know whose names are written in the book of life. You know whose hearts whose names aren't written, whose hearts you have been convicting and wooing and drawing and calling to salvation, you know, Lord. So very simply, I just ask, Holy Spirit, may you pierce our hearts in conviction and may we respond as you would have us respond. We look to you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray.